Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. We are dedicating this episode of the Women's Podcast to Vicky Phelan, who died on Monday. First of all, I want to say that we're thinking of all her family, who she loved so much and who loved her so much, especially her children, Amelia and Dara, and her husband, Jim. I was lucky to meet Vicky a few times over the last few years and she was always so generous with her time and in her campaigning. Um, We actually had her on three times over the past four years, once in Roisin Meets and then twice with the Women's Podcast. So we thought really to honour her that it would be great to bring you parts of some of those conversations. She was really excellent, gorgeous company. She was fun and she was so smart. She had a razor sharp brain. She was determined and tenacious and an adventurous person and and those qualities she brought to her campaigning because she just didn't accept anything that was said to her without investigating it fully herself and she did that right until the end. Most of you all listening will know about what she did for Ireland, for Irish women, for girls, for our health system. But Ed O'Loughlin actually wrote a brilliant piece in the New York Times this week about Vicky and For anybody who isn't familiar with the story uh, and her exposure of the cervical scandal in Ireland, I'm going to read some of that before we get into the episode. Ed writes, Vicky Phelan had a harsh choice to make. In return for immediate payment, the 43-year-old mother of two dying of cervical cancer could sign a non-disclosure agreement and settle her medical negligence claim. Or she could take her case to Ireland's adversarial, expensive and often slow-moving courts, and maybe leave her family with nothing. Time and the odds were not on her side. It was April 2018 and she had just been given six to 12 months to live. Opposing her suit were the Irish government's health authority and an American subcontractor, Clinical Pathology Laboratories Inc. of Austin, Texas. The company had failed to note signs of cancer in a routine pap smear she underwent in 2011 and which was later found to have been positive. Her lawyer advised her reluctantly that it was in her family's interest to sign the NDA and settle out of court. But Ms Phelan, who outlived her prognosis by years, succumbing to her cancer this week at age 48, had reason to believe that there were other women in her position who, unlike her, did not know that they had been deprived of a chance for an early diagnosis and therefore earlier, more effective treatments because of the botched tests. She chose to go to court and won a settlement of 2.5 million euro or about 2.6 million dollars for herself and her family, becoming a national hero and exposing what advocates said was one of the biggest medical scandals in Irish history. A subsequent official inquiry revealed that at least 220 other Irish women had also developed cervical cancer after receiving negative results for state-run pap smears that a later review showed should have been flagged as likely positive. 
According to 221+, an advocacy group founded by Vicky and other affected women and their survivors, around 30 of those women have since died. That was Ed O'Loughlin's piece in the New York Times and it was wonderful to see that and just to see how far her incredible story travelled. Vicky died at Milford Hospice in Limerick in the early hours of Monday morning and as you know, her legal case against the HSE and the US laboratory exposed the cervical check scandal and prompted a series of reviews of the cervical cancer screening programme, Cervical Check. The first time I spoke to Vicky was in May 2018. She came on the Roisin Meets podcast. It was just 10 days after she spoke outside the courts and went public with her story. So it was in that very kind of heightened time. And she told me how she was feeling in the days since and why she decided not to sign that non-disclosure agreement. And listening back to this piece, which we're going to start the episode with, I'm reminded of her courage and her incredible brain and of the fact that she was such a determined feminist force for justice in this country, a country which has failed women in so many ways through the decades. So here's the beginning of our tribute to Vicky Phelan in her own words. Vicky, thanks very much for coming on the podcast today. Now, you tweeted this morning that heads should roll. Can you tell us where you're at in terms of um, how things have developed since uh, you walked out of the court 10 days ago? Yeah, I mean, look, I suppose um, when I started all of this, I, you know, obviously I was doing it for primarily for myself and my family um, in the event that I do die. And uh, I mean, I'd like to say um, just, I suppose, at the, at the, off the, you know, at the top of my head, um, I really don't think I'm going to die. I mean, some people probably think I'm in denial. I am not in denial. I know I've got a terminal illness, but I mean, I'm going to throw everything at this. And that is the main reason I took this case was to get the funds to be able to throw everything at at my illness to, to give myself a fighting chance of surviving. So that was the main priority for me when I took this case. And obviously the second priority, if I do die, is to provide for my family. But once I, uh, my solicitor, you know, found out information that there were other women involved, I mean, I you know, thought it was just me. Um, but when we found out that there were other women involved, there was no way I could have ever sat on that information. Um, just uh, just morally, ethically, um, I'm a principled person. I certainly couldn't do that. Um, but at the same time, I mean, when, when I, you know, I, I, from the very get-go, I was never going to sign a confidentiality clause because I thought what was done to me, um, you know, withholding this information for three years was absolutely inexcusable. Um, and then I found out that there were other women and that just made my resolve even stronger, to be honest, to, to, to make sure that this would never happen to, to anybody else. Um, so to go from 14 women to Jesus potentially, you know, is it 3,000 at this stage, Roisin? Yeah. Um, uh, I'm I'm absolutely, I mean, I just think it's disgraceful. It is a scandal. I mean, you know, the word is being used correctly at this stage. It is an absolute scandal. Um, and I suppose I know I should be focusing on my health, but I do find it very difficult to pull back yeah. because uh, I know that people are listening to me because um, I'm telling the truth. What I speak is the truth. And I seem to be the only one doing that at the moment. So I feel very strongly that um, if I say something that people are going to stand up and listen and at least it might push people up at the top to start making decisions that are the correct decisions. Okay. Can we go back to the fact that you had an opportunity to basically shut up about this and maybe take some money and never speak of it again, that non-disclosure uh, agreement that you could have signed but you didn't. What's it like when somebody comes to you and asks you to sort of stay silent and, and was there any a moment when you felt, well, maybe I'll, I'll go down that road? Um, it's it's uh, it's an unusual situation to be put in because I suppose I have to say after, you know, that 
I was in a very um, good position with my case. Um, my solicitors, very, you know, we, we had a very airtight case. We knew that. So for me to be able to say no to the non-disclosure agreement was easier probably than some other women who may be taking cases going forward. It was quite clear to my solicitors, to the experts in my case um, that were called to uh, provide evidence that my smear was an absolute you know, miss. You know, there was there was no question about that. Either it was looked at by somebody who was totally incompetent or it wasn't looked at at all. The smear sample itself was so full and plentiful of cancer cells that there is no way it could have been missed. So it was a negligent smear that was missed in my case. So I suppose we knew from kind of, not the get-go, but kind of once we started getting all the documents back in um, to prepare for the case, uh, that uh, I had a very, very good case and that, you know, my solicitor more or less told me he would back his house on me winning. Uh, hmm. So I had that confidence going in. Um, and uh, look, I mean, Roisin, I'm a very principled person. Uh, once I make my mind up about something, I don't really back down. Um, hmm. So I totally, uh, 100% believed in my solicitors. I had great faith in them. But I also believed that I had a very strong case and I knew we were going to win. And it wasn't about the money so much to me um, after a certain amount of money. You know, I knew I was going to get a good settlement out of it. Um, so, you know, even if they had offered me five million, Roisin, to, and, and they didn't, uh, so in case people think they did, <laughs> even if they had offered me a ridiculous amount of money, I still would never have signed a non-disclosure agreement because there was too much at stake for other women. And uh, for, the, for the future of the cervical screening program, I have a daughter who's coming up. I mean, there's no way I could put faith in a program uh, for my daughter coming through. Uh, so I had to, I had to act. That, that It was as simple as that for me. And I never wavered. I mean... I never at one point uh, worried that I made the wrong decision, to be honest. And uh, the day of the mediation, when this when this uh, confidentiality clause was, uh, you know, put on the table, it actually happened before myself and my husband arrived. Uh, we had been getting the train up, and when we arrived into the um, the distillery building, that's where we went for the mediation. When we arrived, Keen O'Carroll came down, my solicitor, and said, look, Vicky, he said, you and Jim, you know, go off for a cup of coffee. He said, there's been a bit of a development. Uh, they're looking for a confidentiality clause. And I started straight away kind of going, are you serious? I said, do they not know? Have you not already told them that there is no way I'm signing this? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, we know, we know, don't worry. He said, um, uh, I just needed to get that from you. He said, your reaction is enough. He said, I know you don't want to sign an, un a, a, an undisclosure agreement. He said, so we're just trying to kind of iron things out up here before you come up. So when I came up um, then to the, the, the room, you know, there were three rooms for the, the, the mediation. So me and my solicitors and barristers were in one room, the HSE and the State Claims Agency and their crowd were in another room. And then the lab, and their barristers and solicitors were in the third room. And then this mediator was going between the three. Hmm. And, um, you know, we, we were literally once, you know, we, we told them absolutely not. There is no, um, no way that Vicky will sign a confidentiality clause. We had to sit there until literally until lunchtime, or I think it was nearly two o'clock that day. And that this was from, you know, about 11 o'clock that morning until uh, the the uh, company, the lab in America came online, basically, so that their barristers and solicitors could say, well, look, she's not going to sign a, a confidentiality clause. What do we do now? So, you know, at that stage, they decided, well, um, no, uh, you know, this is something that they had written into their contract with the HSC. Mm. If she's not going to sign a confidentiality clause, well, then we just go to trial. And uh, that was it. 
Um, so we went home that day knowing that the trial was going to start then the following week, the following Thursday. And, uh, you know, I was ready for that, Roisin. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I, I wasn't one bit worried. Um, do you know what was interesting to me, Vicky, just reading the reports? The fact that the case against the HSE was struck out. And I haven't seen much much about that. Can you can you talk a bit about that? Because obviously maybe it was very clear, like you said, the incompetency or, or the fact that the smear was missed by the lab. But what has kind of created this scandal or created the kind of national conversation and, you know, a government that's sort of slightly in crisis about it is the fact that people weren't told. But that sort of issue wasn't enough to, to do anything in terms of a case against the HSE. Yeah, I'm, the day we settled, so my husband was due to give evidence on the Tuesday. He went up to Dublin on the Tuesday to give evidence. And, you know, Roisin, I mean, people forget behind all of this, you know, there, there are, you know, we are a family, we're humans, and, you know, we were put through this awful ordeal. That has to be kind of borne in mind um, that, uh, you know, this is very, very traumatic for, for, my, for my family, particularly for my husband and for my parents who, you know, were up at the court and had to listen to me talk about, uh, you know, very private parts of my life and uh, answer questions about, you know, when I died. They were never talking about if, they were yeah. always talking about when. And that's very hard to hear. But, um, yeah, so when they decided to offer the settlement, and I think it was basically the gynecologist um, expert, uh, Professor Shepherd, when he went up on the stand, they literally ran for the hills at that stage, you know, and my solicitor said the barristers were in and out running, literally, like headless chickens, uh, in and out on the phone while the, bar- while the gynecologist was on the stand, basically kind of saying, well, make this stop, you know, because the gynecological expert was so brilliant and so scathing of what had happened and kept mentioning these 10 other women and the court reporters were there obviously scribbling all of this down Uh, so they knew it was going to come into the papers and this was going to cause an absolute scandal you know so that was when they offered the settlement without the confidentiality clause because they knew it was going to get worse before it got better to be honest Um, and when they did offer the, the confidentiality clause the only way that they would offer me a settlement with the confidentiality clause was if the HSE got struck out. Now I have to say when my solicitor told me that the HSE were going to be struck out and that the lab was going to pay for all the damages in the settlement I was furious. I just thought does this mean they're going to get away with this? Because you know I'm not a legal person so you know he had to explain to me what this meant. He said well, technically, yes. In legal terms, yes. They're, you know, they're not liable for anything, he said. But look, you know, this is a very good case, he said. We know they have done you wrong, he said. And we know that they have um, withheld information from other women. So, uh, you know, this is going to go in the media, he said. And we're going to push it that way, he said, and make them responsible. So that was the only way I would agree to it. Because to be honest, Roshin, I nearly pushed for, yeah. uh, you know, n- not accepting that a settlement as well, to be honest, because I was so furious that they were going to be struck out. I mean, I suppose that's what I'm thinking. Other women, because I presume you're, you've been in touch with them, you're, you're something of a lightning rod now for a beacon and as well as, obviously, you have to go off and try and mind yourself and try and somehow, you know, get the resources to try and try everything you can to, to, for, to look after yourself. There's women coming to you, I presume, now and looking to know what to do and I suppose pursuing the HSE is not a thing that that, that case was struck out. It's all about the labs. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, I have been contacted by at least three women and one one man actually one man who contacted me yesterday whose wife is one of the 17 and I'm not going to give too much details because you know that's his business but you know he has been in touch with me um, his wife was very young I mean this is a very upsetting part of it for me to be honest you know to hear all these stories like this woman is only 36 they've got two small boys and um She's only dead since last year. I mean, you know, and this is the part that makes me so angry that you know, 
and I did say this already, it's all young women that are involved in this scandal. You know, I mean, I know there are older women as well, probably. But, you know, these are young women with young families leaving very small children behind and nobody's held accountable. You know, it's just disgraceful. And this poor man is, is here now trying to, you know, take a case against the HSE and he's still grieving for his wife. I mean, it's it's just disgraceful. Yeah, and you're you're the one who people will come to. And I suppose you're glad to, to do that on one level. Oh, absolutely, but, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Roisin, at the moment I'm screening calls, I'm screening messages because my phone is literally just hopping. Um, but, uh, you know, what I am going through, I mean, you, you know, I, and I do appreciate all the messages that I am getting from everybody. It's a bit overwhelming, to be honest, the type of things that people are saying, you know, because I'm, I'm a very normal person, you know. I'm being called a national hero and I'm amazing and, you know, I suppose I am, but I mean, I, I'm just doing it because it's the right thing to do. Um, I don't really, you know, I never wanted the accolades. I just did it because I just could not stand over um, not letting those other women know. And I only knew that there were, you know, 14 other women at the time and never, never would have imagined that there would have been this many women involved. Um, Vicky, can I talk to you a bit about there's some people talking about how this is kind of has to be put in context in terms of women's health and the treatment of women in, in Ireland generally over decades. I mean, there's people in the conversation, bringing in everything from, you know, mother and baby homes, magdalene laundries, the hepatitis C, ways that this church and the state in this country has failed women. Do you see it in that context? Do you see it as a gender issue? Uh, I just wondered about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose it is, you know, because all of these cases, I mean, because I'm reading the papers every day and trying to keep up with the developments as they're happening, I'm reading about all these other cases that people are referring to. And uh, it's only when you read them and you, you know, like the hepatitis C scandal and um, Bridget McCall and Donegal, um, you know, you just you just see that the, the, and it's the aggressiveness, Roshin, it's the aggressiveness with which these people are pursued by the HSE through the state claims agency that is disgraceful you know and that's the that's the part of my case you know and the way they fought me that um i i find you know very hard to believe i mean at the end of the day none of these people nor myself uh are on trial here you know we're the victims yes you know from from my case in particular and i'm sure all cases uh, you know people who have taken these cases against the state claims agency have been very similar you know you're the one going up there having to answer all these questions um when really it should be the people who are defending the case who should be asked all the questions uh, and made to answer those difficult questions. Yet that never happened in my case. You know, they struck it out before they got to, to put any of these people up on the stand. You know, I mean, they had uh, Professor Gornia Flannelly was one of their witnesses and I was waiting. To be honest, that that was half the reason I, I didn't want to settle because I wanted them to go up there and answer questions that I wanted answers for. And that never happened. And I think that is disgraceful. Today in The Examiner, Alison O'Connor has written about you and I'd just like to read you out the last few paragraphs of the article, if you don't mind. Sure. So she says, but Vicky Phelan chose to fight for herself and the other women who were left in the dark about their abnormal smears and indeed for all Irish women who have attended the cervical check screening programme. In recent days, the politicians have been making all the right noises about fixing and checking and monitoring and making it illegal for medical personnel not to report an error when it occurs. There was even a resignation, that of the medical director of cervical check, Dr. Gronia Flannery, a thing that is as rare as hen's teeth in Irish public life. We could indulge in mega analysis of Irish society's issues when attempting to deal with matters that relate to below the Irish female belly button. We could say that it was just a coincidence that it was the cervical check programme involved here.
literature which exclusively deals with women. But we could also put it in the context of the painful history over decades and the bitter lessons learned from the litany that make up this column. Putting it another way, can we name any medical or social scandal that has affected only the male gender? Last on that lengthening list of shame is the 170,000 or so Irish women who have had to travel since 1980, mainly to the UK, to terminate their pregnancies. Then there are the 2,000 or so who take the abortion pill here every year, with the numbers rising in the secrecy of their bedrooms, terrified that anything will go wrong and they will require medical attention and face possible prosecution. If anything good is to come out of all of these various horror stories perpetuated against Irish women, it is the fact that they have re-emerged in their various ways during our national discussion on abortion. Surely the sum of all their parts add up to a really stellar argument on the need for Irish women to be given autonomy over their healthcare choices and to be allowed to have an abortion in their own country. Now I don't know where you stand on that but that's just one response I, from I one stand woman. In the yes, I stand on the yes side because I totally, it's, it's, I was just going to say it's like what I said earlier about um, having the choice to have uh, to, to decide whether you want to have alternative therapies. I totally, 100%, I never had to guess, uh, question whether I was going to vote yes or no. I knew I was going to vote yes. Women should have choices to make those decisions about their bodies themselves and not to have anybody else telling them what to do. That was Vicky back in 2018, as I said. And now a year later, she published her memoir, Overcoming. And I finally got to meet her in person when she joined me in the Irish Times studio to talk about her book. And it was really lovely to see her and to hug her because that was um, 2019 and we were still allowed to hug then. We talked about loads of things, uh, about the difficulties she had faced in her life, including a serious car accident as a young woman. We talked about her daughter's accident when she was seven years old. But we began our conversation right back at the beginning when uh, Vicky told me about her life growing up as the eldest of her family and how that shaped her. Yeah, uh, like a lot of people in this country, we you know big families. We're all down to two and three kids now. But, you know, I'm the oldest of five and I have three brothers. And then my sister didn't come along until I was 11. So, you know, having three brothers, um, they were who were always fighting, by the way, um, you know, really toughens you up, to be honest. And I was a real tomboy out playing with all the lads for, you know, years until my sister came along. Um, but like that, my mother was working, um, would have done shift work. And I was having to get dinners ready at, you know, 10, 11 years of age. And, and mind the lads and do my homework. So, you know, uh, that definitely gives you, um, I don't know, definitely a strength of character that uh, you have to be independent, you know, I think as a, at a young age when, when you're kind of left your own devices. Uh, and my mother trusted me. I think that was the thing too. You know, my parents knew I was sensible and were, you know, that the kids were left in capable hands. So Because you were a very studious kind of person as well. Oh my God. Yeah. Were you always looking outside yeah. Ireland too and wanting to get away and that kind of oh, thing? Oh yes, absolutely. I remember my best friend and I wouldn't have been the same as me and she used to come up trying to get me to come out, you know, uh, especially when it came to leaving cert. I mean, I had timetables taped up on my wall for you know the whole two years of so the leaving cert cycle oh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and my friend was the same she was there god she used to come up and, and my mother would even be pleading with me go on would you go out with Maria for a while no I have to study whatever x y and z you know so yeah I always loved studying I mean education for me I don't know it just opened my eyes and I loved reading I mean one of the things my mother 
you know, is very strong. And like, I, you know, I'd always go to my mother as my kind of critic. She reads so voraciously. Mam would read two or three books a week, you know, and taught us to read from a very young age. But wouldn't have had like the opportunities Not you had. Not at all. I mean, Mam still gets books from the library. Like there's a little mobile library that goes around and, you know, Tom, the librarian, knows exactly the kind of books Mam likes. You know, so, it, it, you know, reading is a great thing because, you know, no matter what you have, whether you have money or you haven't, you know, you can still, people can get books, you can borrow them and it just takes you away. It's an escapism, isn't it? That's what it is. And for my mother, it was certainly an escape from five kids, you know, killing each other at home. So, um, yeah, no, I lo- always loved studying, always loved studying. And did you want to get away then? Did you yes. have that sort of outward looking? Um, yeah, I, I was blessed to have a brilliant teacher. I mention her a lot in the book um, and she's actually going to launch uh, my book at the, in Waterford next week. She was instrumental really for me when I got to secondary school because I was the first um, person in my family to go to college, which sounds like, you know, people look at you now and you go, really? But this was back in the 90s, you know. And I was the first one to go to university. Uh, most of them might have done, you know, kind of trade courses yeah. or, you know, add on courses, level six. But this was like full on, you know, four year degree program and actually moving away, you know, not living at home. So um, she was, you know, she recognised that I was extremely bright um, and I just needed the encouragement because my parents hadn't gone to college. They didn't know there was, you know, now I know what to call it. You know, looking back, you know, we didn't have that cultural capital, as they call it, you know, because my parents were working Even class. filling out CAO forms totally. or whatever. Yeah. They wouldn't have known where to start, you know. So I got that encouragement from her and kind of realised then, oh God, maybe I could do this, you know. And I mean, she went so far as to even pick the university for me to go to. She said, UL would be really good for you because, you know, she said I was very bright, but could be a bit lazy. So this will keep you on your toes. It was continuous assessment. So and it worked perfectly for me. I just loved it. You know? And tell me about going to France because the thing in reading the book, right, mm. is we know such a lot about you. But reading the book, we learn an awful lot more. You've had, before anything ever happened with cervical cancer to you, you've had more sort of misfortune and tragedy and stuff going on in your life than a lot of people have, you know. Yeah. So tell us about a few of those things because you went to France and that was quite a, a seismic time in your life mm. in, in a few different ways, really. Yeah, so I had been to France for two summers prior to um, when I went to France um, on work placement with the university. Again, it was my French teacher um, saw that, you know, I was good at French, but I'd improve it more if I went and spoke the language. So I had worked as an au pair for two summers. So by the time I started university, my French was really good anyway. So I got a really good placement in France um, at a hotel and uh, off I went anyway, delighted with myself, gone off for six or seven months. And I just loved everything about the language. I loved, you know, learning about different cultures and their traditions and, you know, the different things, you know, like going for the, you know, the the cafe at four o'clock. And I just loved all of that. And I I was like a sponge, all the vocab, you know, taking it all in. And I'm very blessed to have a good memory still thank God to this day but uh, anyway we made some friends when we were working there it was a hotel where they took in a lot of um, um, God I can't think of the word in English interns I suppose so there were a lot of us there from Ireland there was um, four four students from UL there were three uh, hotel management students from England and they were kind of over us because they were older and they were in their final year and then there was a lot of um, interns from French uh, hotel management and catering uh, colleges and that's where I met Christophe so Christophe started uh, about two or three weeks after me and uh, Katie my friend Katie always says well you know she's responsible for introducing us which she was um, so we met anyway and uh, you know it's, it's, it's funny I, I never had that experience before where you meet somebody and you kind of know straight away there's that, that spark you know and we started going out, obviously, and, um, you know, it was a lovely time. And, and actually, you know, in the book, you can see kind of, you know, the happiness and the fact that I kept diaries at that time. 
you know, it was gr- it's great to have them to look back on because it was really just, you know, one of the best times of my life. But anyway, um, it's coming to an end um, because one of the girls is going back to Lille. It was Katie, actually. It was her last night and we decided we'd go further afield. We went to this nightclub. Normally we go to this little bar and we decided this night, well, look, we'll go all out now, go to the next town. And off we went. There was two carloads of us, ten of us, in these tiny little Renault 5s. I don't know, do you remember? what They're tiny cars, like yeah. matchboxes. So off we went, anyway, in the two cars. And about four o'clock that morning, we were travelling back. Some of us, I would have been in work for six o'clock. Jesus, when I think about it, now you wouldn't do it. But <laughs> you had the energy. <laughs> not at all. So we were coming back uh, and we were on country roads. You know, it was kind of, you know, not a built up area at all. So, you know... The fact that this fireman literally, you know, swerved to avoid the car that crashed into us. If he had not been a fireman, I don't think he'd have turned around because he wouldn't have known what to do. Do you know what I mean? But he knew that he was hoping to be honest when he was looking in his rear view mirror that this car was going to swerve and go into the ditch. But what he saw then was the fireball. He saw that there had been a crash and turned around and came back and uh, realised, you know, this was a very serious accident. We were lucky that he was a fireman. He knew what to do. Um, he had a knife on him to cut us out of the cars because if he didn't, you know, we, none of us would have made it, to be honest, if he hadn't been there. Um, he got third degree burns trying to pull us out of the cars and he got a medal for bravery for what he did because, you know, he saved three of us from death, basically, you know, but out of the three six, out of six. So the guy that crashed into us died on impact and there were five in our car. So Christoph was driving and he died straight away immediately. There was no headrest in the car, so literally snapped his neck, gone. I was in the front seat, passenger. Um, uh, I survived, but the seatbelt did all the damage, so I broke a lot of bones, you know, um, ribs, collarbone, my nose, cheek. Uh, my pelvis was shattered, broke my femur bone, which is the one in your thigh, my ankle in three places, internal bleeding. I mean, it was a catalogue, you know, of of injuries. Katie um, was thrown out of the car. She wasn't wearing a seatbelt um, and she's paralysed. Now, she's still alive, but she's very... Uh, it's not even that she's paraplegic. She has some use of her arms um, and she's had a lot of surgeries over the years that just to give her, like, it's called a pincer grip, just to be able to pick things up with her hands, which has given her a bit more freedom. But, you know, it's still very hard to see her like that, you know. And then Lisa, another Irish girl that was in the car with us, um... She died, uh, but not straight away. She was brain damaged, you know, with the injury that she had. Um, and her parents had to turn off the life support machine after 10 days. So it was horrendous, you know, and, horrendous. And Vicky, I mean, it's absolutely awful. Like reading that, you really, it's mm. very well written. Naomi, who you wrote the book yeah. with, is, is a brilliant writer and it's it's very good. But you were in hospital from from quite a long time then? Yeah, so it happened on the 10th of July and I was in hospital in France for five weeks until I was stable enough to be transported home. But even at that point, when, when they left me go home, I had to be stretchered on a plane, you know, so they would take out nine seats out of the plane and put me on a stretcher because I couldn't sit up because my pelvis was shattered. So I was on the flat on my back for about nine weeks before I was allowed to even sit you know and then I was in hospital in Waterford Regional Hospital then until I got out I think the first week in October So in terms of your attitude to life at that point Mm. I mean you'd had an escape but you'd lost people you loved particularly like your first love and and all that goes with that how did it change how you moved on because you did meet Jim then eventually but did it take a long time Oh god yes Yeah I mean that happened in 1994 I didn't meet Jim till 1996 and even at that point when I met Jim, you know, I kind of did keep him at an arm's length for a long time because I just wasn't ready. To, I just wasn't ready emotionally, I think, to be honest. I didn't know it at the time, but that's really what was happening. Um, I was very bitter and angry, to be honest, Roisin, for a long time. I blamed 
I wouldn't have had a huge strong faith, I suppose, but I certainly started blaming God um, and kind of wondering how this could happen to people who did nothing to deserve this. Do you know what I mean? And I think it was very difficult for me to accept for a long time because I didn't get to attend funerals. So you still expect these people to walk through the door, you know, so... Oh, it took an awful lot of time for me to just get over it. And I, I changed. I mean, my best friends would tell you that, that I changed from then on, you know, from being this kind of outgoing, happy-go-lucky person. I became very introverted. I didn't go out. I stopped drinking for about two years because alcohol just made me very weepy, to be honest. I've had too many drinks and I got a lot of flashbacks. So I just stopped drinking for a long time, you know. Um, you did get together with Jim though mm. and then you had uh, your first child and again I just feel like you've had a catalogue <laughs> of things without, we'll get to you know later yeah. on but you know there were, you knew very early on that there was something wrong with yeah. Amelia um, tell us about that yeah so um, I had a f- like my pregnancy was absolutely perfect you know flew through it to be honest and I was quite always sporty so at that stage I hadn't started the running until after I had Amelia but I would have been swimming a lot so I was swimming throughout the whole pregnancy kept active and I was going in for this scan and you know this again is another example you know it's funny when you go back over it you know of the two tier system we have here I had gone private for my pregnancy because of the fact I'd had such terrible injuries from my accident and my pelvis was so badly shattered they didn't think I'd actually be able to carry a baby to full term. So the midwives wouldn't have touched off me so I had to go private. So we scraped the money together to do that at the time and I had a scan at 28 weeks which I wouldn't have had if I had been public. And it was at that scan that my gynaecologist picked up that there was something wrong with the baby. Now he didn't know what it was but he knew it wasn't good. I remember him saying to me, because I went in on my own for the scan, I mean, I do a lot of this stuff myself, you know, I never need somebody really holding my hand. And I hadn't any reason to worry about it. So I um, remember being at that scan wondering what the hell um, is going on here. You know, nothing, I had felt fine, I was tired, but sure, you know, this is my first pregnancy, I didn't think that that was anything unusual. So anyway... um, it was later on that day, I had to, he literally told me he had to admit me to hospital um, until he found out what was wrong. So I went to the hospital, Jim came straight in and um, we, we were kind of sitting there in shock, not knowing what to think really, you know. So I remember my gynecologist coming back to um, the hospital when he was finished um, all his patients and said to me, uh, unfortunately, Vicky, you know, what I saw on the scan this morning, you know, it's not good. I don't know what it is yet. We're going to have to get a lot of bloods done, but you're going to have to stay in until we figure out what it is. But basically, it's one of three things. It's either um, Edward syndrome, and I went, oh, Jesus, I had heard of that one. Um, a congenital heart defect or toxoplasmosis. I went, oh, my God, you know, this is, how, how can it have gone from this normal pregnancy to this in such a short space of time, you know? So the hard part of that then, until we found out what it was, and it took about three weeks, you know, to get all these bloods done, it's the not known. Actually, not known is so difficult because you're imagining the worst you know. And the toxoplasmosis affects the eyesight mm-hmm. and it's you're not known, um, it could be brain damage as well yes. and you don't know how it's going to affect um, and when she was born mm. then you were dealing with all of that but also you suffered from postnatal depression yeah. too so yeah. that was you know compounding. Everything. Yeah I think you know when I look back on it now I mean how I didn't see it coming I don't know because I mean the last six weeks of that pregnancy were horrendous I was in hospital for most of it and then when they realised that I had toxoplasmosis and I had that amniocentesis done that proved that the baby had it as well 
Um, so I was put on this horrendous medication. Um, I couldn't even, most days I wasn't even getting out of the bed, to be honest, because if I moved my head, I was vomiting. I couldn't keep anything down. Um, I lost two stone in the space of six weeks. I was skin and bone now, to be honest, by the time I had the baby. So, you know, I was exhausted. I was sick. And really nobody could tell us until she was born how she was going to look. And, you know, it's even you're at the point you're going, is she going to have 10 fingers, 10 toes? Her And her head, when she came out, was slightly enlarged. So I was worried about hydrocephalus. And it was, I remember when she was born, you know, Obviously, every woman cries when they see their baby. But I was crying just from pure relief, to be honest, that she came out. You know, it was like, Jesus, she's still alive. Yeah. You know, so it was it was just awful. You know, And, and did you go about sort of looking into, because some people wouldn't know what toxoplasmosis is, if you can give us a brief description of what yeah. it is. Oh, I, you know, I did the same with that as I did yeah, with everything in I mean, my life. You're, you're a SWAT, basically. Yeah, yeah. Now, and it's funny, you know, the way people deal with things differently. Jim didn't want to know anything about right. it. He just said, well, why do you need to read up about it? And I said, because that's the way I am. I need to understand this disease. So I started reading everything. I was reading medical papers, journals, the whole lot, and realised that this was, you know, like a lifelong thing, that she could still lose her eyesight. It's not curable. Um, so it's a parasite. So it's a little, par- it's like malaria. It's a very similar condition. So it's this little parasite that lives at the back of the eye and there's no cure for it. So, I mean, she, and you how know, did you get it? And how did the- the, well, so how you pick it up then, you know, when they tell you when you're pregnant, um, to make sure you're eating meat that's cooked, that's not rare or, you know, blood coming out of it. And to have, if you're eating salads or vegetables, that they're all washed. That's why. Okay. okay. Because what happens is it's usually cats or sheep. Actually, sheep farmers know quite a lot about toxoplasmosis, but it's generally passed through cats or cat feces, basically. And myself and my mother were out gardening, as you do. It was a beautiful summer. I remember when I was pregnant and we weren't wearing gloves. And they reckoned that, you know, I obviously touched the soil and there was cat feces from a feral cat in the area we were living in the country and that's how I got it. Simple as that. And so as Millie grew up, I mean, you were dealing with all of that mm. and, you know, do, taking a very rigorous approach to it and finding out everything you could. Um, and then something happened to her when she was around eight. She was seven. Seven. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know. I mean, this is the stuff of absolute parental <laughs> oh, nightmares. It is. It, uh, and you then know, we're adding this to all the stuff you've already been through. And like this is the through. worst thing that ever happened. It's uh, funny you say you know, that in the book because oh, we all know what happened to you afterwards. Yeah. But you actually say this is the worst mm. thing. So tell us that. So I was working away from home. So we moved back to Limerick um, in 2012 because Jim had lost his job, you know. So like a lot of families in this country who were hit by the, the economic recession, he was a builder. There was no work. It was drying up. And, you know, we had a huge mortgage, which we couldn't no longer afford to pay. So we moved back to Limerick because we had kept a house up there, which we had rented out. And it was a really small mortgage. Um, so I said, you know, it makes more sense now just to offload the big mortgage, move back to Limerick and me being me working in education I said sure you may as well go back to college do a degree and we'll get a you know BTA allowance back to education allowance and it'll be a steady income coming in I have a good job let's just do that so that's what we did um, and I said I'd look out for a job coming up in UL but like there were no jobs coming up so I was still commuting up and down from Limerick to Waterford to work mm-hmm. now I had a very understanding boss who you know um, made it very easy for me I took parental leave on Monday but it was an awful commute you know I'd go down on a Monday stay Monday night Tuesday night do two really long days and come home on Wednesday so obviously because I was gone for three days Amelia was always you know looking forward to seeing me when I came back on a Wednesday evening so she stayed up so she'd stay up on a Wednesday evening I'd come back we'd have a cup of tea and a chat and you know I'd look over her homework and you know as you do and I came back home that evening and she was after having her bath and she decided this night, thank God, that she'd dry her hair herself because um, normally I'd dry her hair and she'd really long hair um, and I'd have had a bone dry. Uh, and if if that had been the case, you know, her burns would have been far worse, they said, you know, because with girls and long hair, 
it literally would go up the scalp into the face. Like we were very lucky, to be honest. She has one scar under her chin, but you wouldn't really notice it, you know. So I was inside in the kitchen making the cup of tea. She was in the sitting room prancing around to one of her Barbie videos, which I can still not listen to this day. Uh, and she had this long maxi dress on her. And this was the end of January, but you know, girls like yeah, to get dressed up. That's it, exactly. So um, a spark from the fire caught the back of her dress and it was the right side of her body. And that's where like her right eye is practically. She's practically blind in the right eye. She's less than 10% vision. She didn't see it. Like you or I would might see the flames, because of the you know. Exactly. Yeah. So by the time she realised that this was on fire, she panicked and did what any child would do. She ran. And as she ran, combustion the thing just took off and as I, I was literally had the two mugs and next thing I heard the scream and the scream was you know that you know you hear these descriptions of blood curdling screams that's the only way I can describe it never forget it it won't leave me she was screaming coming into the kitchen and all I could see it was like something from an action movie this fireball coming over her head it was oh I'll never forget it and I screamed at Jim to come down he could hear her screaming he could hear me screaming and thank god the two of us were there and he came down and thankfully I'm a first aider in work and it all kicked in because if I hadn't done what I'd done, like she would be dealing with the disability because her arm would have fused to her body because she had a burn under her arm and I kept her arms out while we were hosing her down with the water just because I saw that she was burned under the arm, not for any other reason. You know, I remember the plastic surgeon saying to me, how did you have the sense to do that? And That's just me being thorough. I just saw that there was a burn there and I kept the water over it. But Jim initially was going to put her in cold water, which is what most people say. Oh, my God, that's exactly what I'd have done. That would have been the wrong thing to do. I just remember, you know, and you find this. You. I just said, no, 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 not not cold water. You have yeah. to run and you have to run lukewarm and run the water over her body to stop it. the burns going deeper. So we still had, thankfully, there was still a bit of warm water left in the tank, you know, yourself with the immersion. So we were, we were lucky. We had it, you know. So we kept the warm water on her, kept her arms out. And while he was doing that, I was on the phone to the ambulance and I was ma- insisting, you know, again, because I could see how bad it was. I said, I'm a first aider. You know, this is not some small little burn. She's se- severely burned. We need the ambulance ASAP. And in fairness to them, you know, they came out within um, 10 minutes, really, you know. I mean, like I say, so much has gone on to you with you before we ever yeah. saw you yeah. on the steps of the four courts. Because mm. that's where, in a way, to, to bring it up to that, because you would think you'd had so much <laughs> gone on in your life. Did you kind of have a sense that nothing else can happen to oh, you? Oh, absolutely. Did you feel like that? Because I think oh, I, I would. Like this, That has to be it. Yeah. But then you got cancer. Yeah. And dealing with all of that. And that was just a year later. So Amelia's accident happened the end of January 2013 and I was diagnosed the following June uh, 2014. You just think really, you know. Can but as we know, uh, that 2014 mm. diagnosis could have come much earlier yes. because as we now know, your results had been in. And what I find amazing about you, so many amazing things, Vicky, but the fact that you, when you suddenly started to cotton on to this fact, you, there was a missing page on yeah. your file. You were straight in there taking pictures you you seem to have this innate sense that something was seriously wrong, where a lot of people might have just gone, you know, oh, I, not enough noticed. Yeah. What is it about you? What, what? Tell me about that time when you kind of, you almost got on this rolling thing, something that I need to unpick here. Yeah. You pulled the thread I, I and think kept it, on I think it's the fact that I, I work in education um, and I, I, I always loved research. Like, I think my ideal job would be research, to be honest, because, that you know, and I just love kind of, you know, 
asking the I've always been good at asking questions and I think that's what it boils down to to be honest Roisin I've always asked questions I've always been the difficult mother the difficult you know patient uh, and you know doctors never particularly liked me because I was always asking questions but you know what I didn't care you know I think you and, and I think that's what we need to learn in this country we need to ask more questions and not worry about what people think about you know us asking questions so I suppose it goes back to that but I think that day in particular I'd had the conversation, you see, with the gynaecologist. So in January 2018 was when I went, and I insisted on that biopsy. You know, they weren't going to give me a biopsy. And it was at that point that I decided I was taking control back. And I think that's kind of what started it, really. It was that that decision I made to say, no, hang on a minute here now. I blindly followed all your treatment plans first time round with the four centimetre tumour. It didn't work. I was in horrendous pain, so sick, you know, and it's ruined my sex life. It's ruined everything in my life, really. And you think I'm going to go through it all again. Uh, but now with the 10 centimetre tumour, you know, I, I just thought, no, I'm not doing that. I want a biopsy to make sure that 100% this is the same cancer. That I thought, well, you know, there's a possibility this could be lymphoma because it was in my lymph nodes. Um, now, that didn't turn out to be the case, but I just thought, no, this is time now I took back control. So because I insisted on the biopsy, we were in there in a treatment room waiting to go down to have the procedure, myself and my mother. And... Um, I sat, was sitting there thinking, you know, I, and I really didn't want to go there, to be honest. But I said to myself, I'm going to have to start doing something about this audit. So I'd had the conversation with my gynecologist the previous September, and he'd been very vague about the audit, you know, just saying that, you know, cervical check could carry this out and it was for educational purposes. Then they decided that they'd have to communicate the results to women because there were discordant results. Um, and he said, in my case, um, you know, the, review, the, the smear I had in 2011, when they retested it, they realised that, you know, it wasn't um, clear that there were actually was abnorm- there were abnormalities. But he didn't kind of say, you know, with 100% certainty, you definitely had cancer in 2011. Mm. He just said, you know, there's a chance you may have had, could have had treatment earlier. He, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I said, well, what, what kind of treatment are you talking about? And he said, well, you could have had a hysterectomy. And I said, and would that have been it? And he said, yes. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And in terms of cervical um, services, like in other countries as well, not just Ireland, there's mm. there's all sorts of um, scandals and things that go on, isn't there, with results? Do you think, um, it, because of what you've done and because of the, all the work of so many other women as well, and we think of Emma Vikvahuna, mm. who you write about very movingly as well, that that things are better now, or what are you wanting to 
have changed? Uh, no, I think things are getting there and I think women are starting to stand up for themselves a bit more. And that's what I keep, I suppose, the one message that I keep harping on about and I keep saying to people is ask questions. Don't, you know, if you, and know your body because sometimes they don't take you seriously. And a lot of the consultants, unfortunately, that women are dealing with when it comes to their wombs or their, you know, gynecological uh, problems are men who know nothing about what it's like to have uh, a womb and to be a woman and to have these symptoms and they're just going by the book. So I would always say to women like, you know, you know your body uh, and I knew my body at the time and I knew at the time that the bleeding I had was not normal for me. You know what I mean? And you have to kind of, you know, take control and take charge and ask the questions and insist. And if you're not happy with your doctor, move, move to another one. So I think small things like that, I think will ha- start to make some little bit of change. But um, yesterday, actually, at the launch in Clontarf, um, one of the women who was asking questions mentioned about um, maybe we, we should start looking at um, uh, a minister for women in this country. And that really started me thinking. And I off went last night then Googling um, what countries have ministers for women. And actually, they have one in New Zealand. They have one in Australia. They have one in the UK. So I'm going to start pushing for that. Now, I think that's something that we need to start looking at. It's not enough to have quotas and, you know, uh, female politicians. We actually need to have somebody who's in charge of women and women's policies in this country. You know, women make up 50% of the country. Like, why are we so tolerant of this. So, you know, I do think there needs to be a sea change really across the board. And we've seen it with the repeal the 8th last year. I mean, that was fantastic, you know, for this country. But we need to build on that and actually use that momentum and start um, demanding more and better services. One of the things I'm really glad that you mentioned a number of times in the book is your sex life. And you Mm. mentioned it there earlier. I mean, it's this idea that, you know, we're not supposed to talk about that or that that's not a really important part of life. But you mentioned it along the way at various stages. And I know for your husband, who's quite a... He's not like you, let's no. say. It, the whole thing must be quite difficult, but it's very generous of him to allow you to tell your full story and mention things like that. But in terms of that kind of thing, the sex life thing, mm-hmm. that was something that you keep coming back to and yeah. saying at various stages of the illness, how it affected you. Mm-hmm. I, I did because nobody was talking about it. I remember, you know, when I was diagnosed first, you know, uh, as I said, I was given this bag of dilators and told to go home and literally use them, you know, for 15 minutes every day to keep my vagina open for internal exams and if I wanted to have a sex life. But there was no talk about, well, you know, how does that make you feel? And, you know, you might need a little bit of support around it. You're literally handed this bag and sent on your way. And I had nobody to talk to because there was nobody else that I knew who was going through this. There was one older woman um, who I spoke with and, you know, we would have spoken. But that was it. You know, they, they don't tend to, there was no support for women with cervical cancer to talk about these issues. So as, once we set up the support group, I could see the difference that it was making by me talking about these things. Like the first time I made the decision to start talking about my sex life was at the launch of the support group uh, uh, where we had about 100, 150 of the group came and Stephen Teep said to me, now Vicky, you know, you need to talk first because they want to hear from you. And I said to him, well, what am I going to talk about? And he said, well, your cancer story, uh, you know, they don't know, they know about your court case, but nobody knows about your cancer story and how it affected you. And I said, well, I'm going to have to talk about my sex life, so our lack of it. And, you know, like you have to have a sense of humour with this at the same time. But I thought if I started talking about it, I knew it would open up the floor for other women. And it did. And as soon as I started talking about it, we started seeing patterns that, you know, uh, one of the things that we've actually managed to 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 get the HSE to to do is to replace these um, bloody dilators with silicone ones. I mean, why should we have to use hard plastic dilators when there are perfectly good silicone ones? Because they're bloody cheaper. So now they're um, they have replaced those, 
they've also put in place support for women so that there are there is somebody to talk to if you do have problems trying to go back that's to have huge. an intimate relationship. And that's a huge thing. But why are not we not entitled to that? You know, these are things that, again, nobody, you know, a lot of these policies are male-driven. They're not thinking from a woman's point of view. Um, Vicky, so what next for you? Like, it's it's one day at a time, obviously. I mean, as mm. much as any of us don't know how long we have left, but you've particularly kind of, yes. you know, urgency about your life. Yeah. So what is it that you want to do? You've got the book now. Your children, uh, Dara and Amelia, can read this. They can, they'll know every single bit, which is a wonderful thing yeah. to have. Um, and also you're helping loads of other people who are in various situations. But what do you want to do? I suppose if uh, if I had a choice, um, if 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 I was given more time. So at the moment, I suppose the way I'm living my life is I'm happy enough to do this campaigning and work um, to try and improve services for for women, really, you know, and for terminally ill cancer patients. I'm doing a lot of work in that area as well. I'm trying. I'm actually funding a position at the moment um, that's going to be run up here in Dublin um, with uh, Professor Cathy Kelly in the matter. Um, and I'm hoping that that will be rolled out across the country if we get good results. Um, but long term, I mean, if I if I if I thought I was going to be here for you know another long time, I'd love to go to to I'd actually love to work in the Senate. That would be my that would be my wish. You know, I'd like to become a senator. I think that would be where I'd maybe make a big impact and bring in some bills that would actually make a difference across the country. So, fingers crossed. That's at the back of my mind constantly. You know. <laughs> So just living your life and doing what you can in yeah. the meantime. And, and enjoying it. And I, th- I just think that's so important, um, you know, to people. I mean, I, I was no different than anybody else. You're always living kind of going, oh, I'll be happy when, you know, and you're always looking for the next promotion or, you know, when I get the new car or when we do up the sitting room. I mean, really, that stuff doesn't matter, you know, especially when you get ill like this. You just have to enjoy the moments, you know. So I'm doing everything I can and taking advantage of all opportunities. I'll be at Fela at the weekend and I can't wait. You know, you have to enjoy life and the small moments, getting out for a walk on the beach, sitting down with my kids, watching a movie, having a bit of popcorn. You know, you can't beat it, honestly. I really enjoyed that conversation and it was so lovely to be with her in the flesh and to be able to give her a hug. Because the thing about her was she was just, as I said earlier, amazing company and you just left feeling really invigorated and inspired after meeting her. So I loved listening back to that. Now, the last time Vicky spoke to us for the podcast anyway was in May 2021. She joined us on the Big Night In series, which I know a lot of you will remember. Kind of got me through the lockdown, actually. We used to have these nights on Zoom and we had amazing guests during that. And Vicky was one of those. It's very poignant listening to it now because she also spoke about death and how she approached that conversation with her family and her friends. And she spoke about her plans for her funeral and why it should be a celebration of her life. She was in Maryland in America at the time and she was taking part in a drug trial for her cancer. And she told us about why she had gone there and decided to leave her kids at home and head over and try this new treatment. It was typical of her, actually. She just wasn't going to give up and she was always going to try and find a way to prolong her life however she could. She really was an extraordinary person. Well, it was a very simple choice for me, Roshi. And I suppose I'm lucky I'm the type of person who can, I'm a very logical brain and that's the way I've always, that's why it's been easier for me to make a lot of these decisions because I can rationalize it and I don't get emotional. I mean, obviously the emotions come after, obviously when I you know, left, I was upset and the reality of what I did hit me on the plane, I think when I was on the way over. Um, and I was, you know, I had a couple of tough weeks at the start when I was on my own and really missed my kids. But at the same time, the logical part of my brain said, well, I had two options. I either stayed at home 
And the option was palliative chemotherapy. And as soon as I started on that palliative chemotherapy regime, that was literally the time, the clock ticking uh, on my on my death, you could say. I mean, I would have had maybe 12 months and I just thought I'm not doing that. I'm not ready for that yet. Um, I want to try one more thing before I, you know, down that road and see if this will give me more time so because I've had such a good response to pembrolizumab again the logical side of my brain thought well you know I've had nearly three years of good quality of life on pembro why wouldn't I try another immunotherapy drug and see if I could get another maybe two or three years on this and then if this stopped working and then all there was was chemo well then I'd probably go on the chemo but for the moment I felt it was worth another shot to try something else and that's what I decided to do because you know, obviously the big thing for me coming over here, um, the first hurdle I had was my son's birthday. So my son was 10 in February and I missed the birthday, obviously, because I'm over here. And that was very hard. But then I'm kind of thinking, well, you know, OK, I'm over here for his 10th birthday, but I'll be home for his 11th birthday and hopefully his 12th birthday. And that's the way I rationalise things. And it's the only way I can do it to deal with this. Just, I suppose, uh, the conversation around death and dying, Vicky, which doesn't sound like a Saturday night chat. Sorry, everyone. But in a weird way, it's something I think we should talk about much more because it is something, OK, mm. Vicky, you might be closer to it. And we know you've had to look at it m- much more in an immediate way than hopefully a lot of us on this call have. But at the same time, isn't it a subject that we should probably talk about more death? I think so. I think everybody should talk about it. And I don't think it should be left until you're nearly dying to deal with it, because I think then, you know, when you're at that stage, you know, you're very emotional and it's very hard to make kind of rational decisions about what you want. Or if you get to a stage where somebody dies suddenly and nobody knows what that person might have wanted. Well, then, you know, does that person then get the death that they wanted um, if they hadn't discussed it? Do you know what I mean? I, I kind of feel that, I suppose, I've had so much time, like three years to think about. I've planned my death to, to the last. I'm one of those control freaks who plans everything, including my death and my funeral. I, I even know down to a T what music I want played at. So, you know, I've, I've thought a lot of this through over. And I don't think there's anything morbid about that. I think it's and, and, and for me, you know, it's important that I discuss this. You know, I haven't just written in my will that they'll discover on, you know, when I die, what I want. I've talked to my friends and my family about what I want. And I've told them that I want, I don't want this big mourning. You know, I want it to be a celebration because at the end of the day, you know, I've, I've managed to keep myself alive for so far three years on top of what I was already given and hopefully another two years. So by the time I die, in fairness, I've done very well to get to that point. So it should be a celebration of, uh, you know, getting me to that point. And I think it will be, you know, a nice way to see me off instead of this, you know, obviously there's going to be mourning and crying and all of that. But I think for me, I'd rather see something, you know, not black. I don't want anybody wearing black, um, you know, so little things like that, that I just think I'd rather see it being a celebration with all the type of music I'd like and more like a kind of a, a night out, you know, with music, live music, you know, not, not, not church music, live music. And again, I don't want to be buried in uh, you know, buried. I want to be cremated. My ashes. I want my ashes to be thrown um, in Dunbeg. And obviously, if my kids want to keep some, I've looked up. Um, I asked my daughter, and she's picked one out already. Um, you can get these little chains with these little things. That you can put some ashes in. So we've really discussed it and, and talked about it quite a lot in my family. Um, and I think everybody should, to be quite honest. In some respects, I feel blessed that I have this time because there are things that people don't say to each other until you know it's too late sometimes and sometimes people don't get to say the things that they wanted to say to somebody before they die and they have to live with that guilt of not telling the person how much they meant to them or not telling you know or maybe if they've had the kind of a, you know family feuds and whatnot and people have fallen out that they don't get to make up 
I mean, I have, you know, crossed, mended all my bridges, you know, where I would have maybe fallen out with people over the years because I think life's too short. Um, and I've told my anybody who's in my you know circle, like my parents, we would have been typical Irish family. You know, we just about hugged. You know, we might have said I love you every once a year, maybe, you know, or in a card. But like my I tell my mother and father every day how much I love them because I don't want them to be guessing, you know, because I think it's so important not to leave those things until, you know, the very last minute, because there's an awful lot of loss then, I think, and grieving for what you haven't said to that person or what you haven't you know, shown that person how much you love them. So, you know, nobody in my family is under any illusion about, you know, how I feel about them. It's all out in the open. I like to do these, these type of talks because I think one person, if just one person listens to me and, and I'm, you know, and I'm as graphic and as open as I can be because I, I can't, you know, it doesn't bother me anymore. In the beginning, when I started talking about it, I felt a bit uncomfortable. Now I couldn't give a shit because I just think it's helping people. And if it helps one person to not feel, to feel less shame about their bodies and to go to the doctor and, you know, and, you know, ask questions and push the doctor to do what you want them to do. That, that means the world to me because it means one less woman is, uh, you know, uh, walking out of a door feeling like she hasn't been heard and maybe, you know, pick up a cancer or pick up something serious that would have been missed otherwise. So please, if any of you are listening, don't be, you know, if you think, oh, I couldn't do that. Yes, you can. Yes, you can do it, you know, uh, and it's your body. You have to do it. That was the incredible woman, Vicky Phelan, there. We're never, ever going to forget her. And her words and her actions and her spirit will continue to inspire us. Thank you, Vicky, for everything from all of us here on the Women's Podcast. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. If you want to email us, we're on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com and on social at IT Women's Podcast. Mind yourselves and I will talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.